What were you doing when you heard about Beyonce's twins? I was in a meeting with my boss, and all of a sudden I heard him scream like, oh my God, Beyonce is having twins. And I'm like, you're lying. And then he was like, no. And I said, it's a lie. And he was like, no, I really, it's right here on Twitter. I said, Twitter is lying. And then he was like, no, really? Um, she posted it on her Instagram. So that's how I really found out that she was having twins. Cause I didn't believe it at first. I was at my desk typing away, responding to an email while my coworker came up to me and was just like, Beyonce's effing pregnant. And I was just like, oh my God. And he was like the greatest news all week. I found out about Beyonce's twins when I was at Jitney on Broadway, sitting in the audience, waiting for the show to start, turn off your cell phones. And I'm like, wait, my phone can't go off just yet. Welcome to MTV's The Stakes, where we're trying our best to make sense of a world that increasingly defies the rules of logic. I'm Julianne Ross, Deputy Editor of Politics and News here at MTV, and filling in for your host, Holly Anderson. It's been a rough week for American society, to say the least, so we thought we'd take just a second to congratulate Beyonce on her twins. Congrats, Bay, and thank you for giving us some much-needed happy news this week. We love you. Okay, back to it. Coming up on the show today. First, we're seeing protests and demonstrations all over the country, tapping into a spirit of resistance that's always been fundamental to democracy. So we're taking a look at a photo exhibit in the Bronx that captures how New Yorkers have rallied together in the past. I think a lot of people who have come in see a link or see a connection between these pictures from from 20 and 30 years ago and what's happening today. Then our poet in residence reminds us that, yep, Racism is still alive and well, and we should give a damn. When his children call themselves alt-right, that's old Jim Crow rattling his chains day and night. But first... James Baldwin is one of America's most notable writers and social critics, and a recent film is continuing his legacy. MTV News staff writer Doreen St. Felix has the story. I'm certain, again, you know, that uh, like, again, like most white Americans I have you know, encountered, they have no, no, I'm sure they have nothing whatever against Negroes. That is no, that's really not the question. You know, the question is really a kind of apathy and ignorance, which is a price we paid for segregation. That's what segregation means. That you don't know what's happening on the other side of the world because you don't want to know. In 1979, James Baldwin, the prolific critic and novelist, started writing a memoir. He told his agent that it would be about three friends he had lost over the years and the life he lived in between. Those men were Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X. Baldwin wasn't able to complete the manuscript. He died in 1987. He was living in France, the place he and other black revolutionaries had turned to when America had alienated them. The manuscript, Remember This House, wasn't available to the public, until now. I Am Not Your Negro, a documentary by Oscar-nominated director Raoul Peck, has given these notes another life. Baldwin's manuscript provides the bones for I Am Not Your Negro, along with footage, both old and new. Peck began making the documentary in the late 2000s. 
but you could say that Peck has been working on this movie since he began reading James Baldwin as a teenager. I, I read Baldwin when I was, you know, around 16, 17. I don't exactly remember, but I knew I probably got uh, The Fire Next Time, which is a small book, but very impressive, very sharp, and uh, that book just blew up, blew up my mind. And Baldwin became some sort of a mental mentor for me, a, a political mentor as well. And uh, he have always been somebody I could go back to uh, in time of, uh, you know, confusion, in time of, uh, of political hardship or, or, or personal hardship, you know. It's, uh, he's not somebody you just read and put aside and, and once for all. He's really somebody you can regularly go back to. And, and I've given so many books of Baldwin to, to people, to young people, to friends, you know, all my life. When the time came where I felt it, it, I needed to do this film, to make this film, uh, of course I needed to get the rights from the estate, uh, which I, I did, and uh, they were very generous with me. They not only gave me uh, the right, but they really gave me access to everything, you know, from books uh, to unpublished manuscript to private letters to... Uh, you know, whatever exists in, in his archive. And it took me another four years to, uh, after different approach uh, to this film, because when you have that kind of access, you better be sure that the film is going to be at the level. It's not a biography, but it's somehow, I try to be as close as possible to his way of writing, to his type of irony, to his poetry, to his way of uh, building up sentences. I wanted to put the language in front. I wanted to put Baldwin center stage with nobody in between talking in his place. And uh, in this industry, you are pretty sure that you can make one film about Baldwin, not two. So you better make sure that this film is, is really top notch. People still talk about the sound of James Baldwin's voice. It was as distinctive as his prose, musical at times, prophetic at others. Creating an imitation just wasn't an option, so Peck tried something else. He called up Samuel L. Jackson. I was, in some way, in those years without entirely realizing it, the great black hope of the great white father. I was not a racist, or so I thought. Uh, you know, I didn't have to give him too much direction. He's a great actor, he's a stage actor. He knew immediately what I wanted, which was, you know, make those these words your own. Make sure that when they come out, it's really from the inside. It's not with a distance. You are, you know, you are one with the text. Journalists said, well, Samuel Jackson was the narrator, or he did the voiceover. No, if I did that, I, I would be dead in the film. I use voices a lot in my films, because it's a really, uh, you know, uh, incredible device to 
to get close to an audience, to, to tell your story in a more intimate way. And that's why whatever comes out of, of his mouth is strong. Because, you know, when you say, I am tired, you know, the way you choose to say it, and not, in fact, not saying it, but playing it and being it, you know, everything, you're, you, the way you, you breathe, the way you stop, the way you, you hesitate, this is all good because you are in character. So that's the way we, we pull it off. Now, Peck says that this movie is not a biography, meaning the point of this documentary wasn't to put forth questions about Baldwin's life or to scrutinize his personal moves. It was to show, with precision and care, an unadulterated picture of the America Baldwin saw through his eyes, an America that repeats its essential racism generation after generation. And sometimes that picture is difficult to watch, there are images of 19th century lynchings that bleed into video of 21st century police murders. So, and, and I use the, uh, some of the footage from the civil rights, but I use also footage that we shot in Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And then you go full circle. You know, the image of the police clubbing um, uh, demonstrators, the fire holes in black and white uh, uh, images, to the images of Ferguson, the only thing which uh, changed was all the gears, the police gears, and that you have tank right now. But the, the confrontation is exactly the same. film has many different layers and I use all those layers including in the, with the music you know we have blues we have jazz we have spiritual uh, we have Kendrick Lamar so all this is it's a way to to make a work of art as well has a lot in common with Baldwin, who he calls his mentor. Peck splits his time between France, New York, Miami, and Haiti, where he was born. Peck said that sometimes leaving America is the best way to understand it. I came very early on in this country. You know, my, my brothers are American. I have a, a brother who was in Vietnam. So my, my life has been linked to, to this country you know, for, for many years. I went to a public school in Brooklyn for, for almost two years. What it gave me, and I think that's what Baldwin got as well, is that when you go away and you look back to this country from the distance, that's when you really understand it. You know, Baldwin had to leave the United States. He had to leave Harlem and the village to go to Paris. And that's when he understood where he came from. Because as he says, when, when you're here, the pressure on your shoulder is too violent, too, too strong for you to find a way to, you know, to sit back and, and look and analyze. And, uh, and when you have the privilege of being uh, elsewhere and look back to where you come from, it's, it's really a very strong, magnifying glass you know, where you really see everything much more clearer. Or, and that helps you make, you know, have a, a more, uh, I would say, 
pertinent analysis. Uh, and I think I, I was privileged to, to use that also through, throughout my life, uh, the, the capacity to go in and out mm -hmm. uh, at certain moments. Uh, this is what gives you a sort of perspective, of critical perspective. And, and I, I, I think that's what also, uh, you know, is in this film. You know, it's, it's a film that is made not only for Americans, but for any human being that is interested or that is part of the world. You know, it's about Baldwin's words. It's about us understanding who he is and, and just trying to be the messenger of what he had to say. So the best thing we can do is make sure that we don't misuse his words, we don't interpret his word, but that we, we give it as raw and as powerful as he wrote them. You know, and, and you need to have that kind of modesty. And, and I, I don't think that was hard for me because, you know, it's like, for me, it was like giving him back, you know, a little piece of what he gave me so generously over all these years. And, and this is what I wanted to share with everybody else. I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. But the Negro in this country, the future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need it. If I'm not the nigger here, and you invented him, you the white people invented him, then you got to find out why. That was Raul Peck discussing his film, I Am Not Your Negro. To find out more and maybe pick up some tickets, which, trust me, you want to do, go to IamNotYourNegroFilm.com. That piece was produced by James T. Green and Doreen St. Felix, with editing help by Kasia Mihailovic, Mukta Mohan, and Michael Catano. We'll be back after this short break. Public spaces have always been a platform for people to stand up for what they believe in and make their concerns heard. Over the past few weeks, we've seen a huge number of people taking to the streets to protest actions by the Trump administration and to show support for marginalized members of the community, which is why the Bronx Documentary Center's new exhibit could not have come at a better time. Whose Streets? Our Streets is an exhibit that features the work of more than 38 independent photojournalists who captured New Yorkers as they marched and rioted between 1980 to 2000. It's a testament to the deep spirit of resistance that we're feeling all over the country right now. 
podcast producer James T. Green viewed the exhibit with Michael Camber, founder of the Bronx Documentary Center. So in the exhibition, Whose Streets Are Streets, there's probably half a dozen major movements that are portrayed. There's the sort of anti-war, anti-imperialism movement in terms of the U.S. was supporting various regimes in Central America in particular, El Salvador and Nicaragua, which uh, also the first Gulf War, the first time that uh, we went to war with Iraq, I think that was 1993. And so you see those movements, you see um, the environmental movement, no nukes, things, things like that, that were very strong back then. Um, there's a lot of stuff around police brutality and police killings. There were a number of really high-profile police killings in the 1980s and 90s. There were literally race riots between blacks and whites in, in New York City, and Crown Heights in particular. So that's represented in the exhibition. There are also a lot of photos from ACT UP, which was the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. When the AIDS epidemic was taking hold, um, the U.S. government was largely ignoring it. Uh, Ronald, President Reagan famously went years without even mentioning AIDS. So there was a huge, huge coalition, and they were very active. They were out on the streets all the time doing protests and demonstrations. Um, there was a big women's movement then that was pushing for equality, LGBTQ issues. There were a number of groups working on that. So the exhibition encompasses all of this. So I'm, I'm looking at all these photographs, and they all feel very tender. I'm curious if you could speak to the relationship between the photographer and some of the subjects. Um, a lot of these moments feel like moments that can only happen from either the photographers being a part of the movements versus someone just descending into space. So mm -hmm. can you talk about some of the relationships of the photographers and protests, protesting, et cetera? I know I can say that a lot of these photographers um, were activists and considered themselves activists. Not all of them, but a lot of them, certainly. And a lot of them were, were members of ACT UP or were members of, um, you know, the Guerrilla Girls or anti-gentrification movement. So I'm just looking at, you know, this wall right here. There's a picture. It says, stop gentrification. We will not be moved. It's a picture taken in East Harlem. And there's some, some kids actually doing acrobatics on top of a sign. Um, that picture's by Joe Rodriguez. And, you know, Joe's a Puerto Rican photographer, worked in East Harlem for, you know, decades, you know, is about as, as deep into East Harlem as you can get, you know. He's, he's part of this. He's not somebody from the outside who's coming in for an hour to take a picture and leave, you know. Like, this is his community. This is his life. You see, you see a lot of intimacy in many of the photos. Not all of them, you know, for instance, this photo over here shows anarchists, you know, burning barricades in front of uh, the Waldorf Astoria, Astoria Hotel, which, you know, is remarkable. I, I always point this photo out because the idea that anarchists could burn police barricades on Park Avenue, you know, can, that, you, that could never happen today. It's just never happened. They wouldn't even, you know, get, get near the place. But when this photo was taken, you know, they're anarchists on Park Avenue burning police barricades. Just incredible, you know. Just it was a very different time, very different time for New York City. How do you feel the connection is between these past protests and this documenting of this time period to basically what's literally happening right around us as we speak? I think a lot of people who have come in, 
see a link or see a connection between these pictures from, from 20 and 30 years ago and what's happening today. A lot of people, you know, think that this is sort of a, a precursor to what's, what's coming up. I can't really, you know, I, I, I'm not going to predict the future, especially after our recent election. I would not, never predict anything again. <laughs> I feel totally confused by this country. But I think a lot of people came in and looked at this and said, basically, equality for women, equality for, you know, LGBTQ, you know, gender issues, abortion issues, um, police killings. Actually, these are all issues that are out there today. You know, these are issues that people are demonstrating against today and that many activists think are going to be rolled back and we're going to have to go out and really start pushing again. You know, I think some of these things people felt like, oh, well, that's been settled. You know, like gender equality has been settled. But we now have a president who brags about sexually assaulting women. So uh, where is this going to go? A lot of people tell me that that they feel like we're going back in time and that there's going to be an entirely new level of protest and, and that maybe these photos can be, you know, a guidepost of sorts. So curatorially, I'm curious to like what your thoughts were in the mixing between both violent and nonviolent protests as the collective whole within the show. Like what was the thinking behind that? We, we always try to find a balance. I try not to, you know, because of my background, um, I try not to be, you know, I come out of a journalism background. I worked at the New York Times. I came out of the mainstream press. Though I also, I started out at the Village Voice, which was a pretty radical newspaper back in the day. You know, very, very progressive, very left-wing. So, you know, I've kind of seen both sides, but, you know, there was a lot of violence in New York, and we wanted to show that violence. We wanted to show that it was really, I mean, there were race riots, you know, there were police riots in New York. Uh, there were, you know, riots that went on for days. I mean, that's kind of incredible. You want to show that, but you also don't want to overemphasize. Uh, you don't want to sort of make it this spectacular, you know, spectacle that makes it seem worse than it was. You need to, you know, you need to, to, to show both sides. You know, it's not... The, the violence, you know, it's interesting because people immediately gravitate towards the violence. You know, it's, it's spectacular. It's exciting. It's like, oh, my God, you know, they're burning police cars. Incredible, you know. But, you know, the reality is that some of the most effective demonstrations were uh, people taking over uh, parts of Grand Central and hanging huge banners, people going to the Statue of Liberty and he hanging huge banners from the Statue of Liberty, lots of things that were not violent but were really smart, intelligent social protest. So many of these photos made a difference, but really it was the demonstrations that made a difference. And we, there's a great photo by Eddie Pagan of a, a young boy, and he is attached to a breathing machine, you know, an asthma machine that gives him fresh oxygen. Um, he has asthma, and so he's, he's walking through the streets at a demonstration with his parents. And the city had put an incinerator in the South Bronx, you know, and this is... This is the, the, the neighborhood that has already has the highest asthma. So putting an incinerator here that's, you know, spewing uh, soot and ash, you know, is, is a terrible idea. And the, the demonstrators came out and demonstrated repeatedly, and they did get the incinerator closed down. The, the city eventually, the, the, the year after this photo was taken, the city actually backed down and said, okay, we'll close the incinerator. You know, people achieved uh, change with, with these with these demonstrations. They really made a difference. 
again, people feel like we're coming around and we're coming into a new era of, of protest. And, you know, a lot has changed, but a lot has stayed the same. You know, there's, um, you know, again, if we're looking at the issues here, if we're looking at environmental issues, if we're looking at police brutality, if we're looking at gender equality, if we're looking at an end to violence against women, violence against African-Americans, you know, that's what this show is about. And those issues are all totally current and pertinent and happening today. If you had fairly new activists, and what I mean by that is like people who are new to activism, uh, and they come to the show, um, what would you hope that they would get out of viewing this history? I think, you know, I talk to a lot of younger activists and, and sometimes some of them lack historical perspective. You know, they feel like these issues just came about, you know, a month ago. I mean, I think I would hope they would see this show and understand that there are people who've been working on these issues for decades and that there's a lot to learn from those people and a lot to learn from the successes and also the mistakes of the earlier activists. I think it's, it's important to look at, um, you know, ACT UP created incredible change and, you know, some of the protests against police brutality in New York City uh, produce real change, you know. And, and it, it's really instructive to look at, at both their, their techniques, their tactics, their strategies, etc., and some of their personalities. And, and some of these movements were not successful, you know, that, or, or suffered great setbacks. I think there's a lot to learn from looking at the previous generation. These, are, these were smart people. You know, they were smart, committed people. You know, they weren't just out there taking a selfie and saying, hey, I'm an activist. These are, these are people who spent decades out there on the streets. And they really worked hard and they did great public demonstrations. You can see, you know, them carrying coffins through the streets. You can see them taking over public spaces with huge banners, you know, that they would um, drape. And, you know, just doing um, die-ins, you know, they would block the entrances to every tunnel and every major avenue in New York City simultaneously, you know, completely shut down New York City. There's techniques. I'm not saying they should be emulated or, or looked up to or looked down to, but you should at least study what they've done and, and know the history. Um, you know, it sort of gives you a foundation as you move forward. That was podcast producer James T. Green in conversation with Michael Camber of the Bronx Documentary Center. With the recent travel ban, an order pushed forward by white nationalist favorite advisor to the president, Steve Bannon, it doesn't take a scientist to know that racism still exists. MTV News poet-in-residence Marcus Ellsworth reminds us why we continue to resist. Some of us know all about the ghost of old Jim Crow. He's mean as he's ever been because he never could set easy in his grave though we've tried to bury him a thousand times. When his children call themselves alt-right, that's old Jim Crow rattling his chains day and night. His howls are sirens from cop cars, reopening half-healed psychic scars. He walks the halls of our schools, playing taxpayers for fools, neglecting knowledge for discipline. After all, it's just a pipeline to prison for some of our children. How do we fight this phantom? How do we find peace in the dark? We provide for ourselves and our kin as we can. We feed each other. 
We sing of freedom. We hold our people up. We love in spite of the growling hate being barked by ghosts. We live. We survive. We rise. That was MTV News Poet-in-Residence, Marcus Ellsworth. I'm Julianne Ross, and those are the stakes. Did you know you can have the show personally delivered to your super magical internet device every time we release a new episode? Search the stakes on wherever you listen to your podcast, like iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and tap subscribe. See, it was that easy, and you'll be so glad you did. While you're there, take a minute and leave us a review and rate us five stars. That's how others find out about the show. Also, tell your special life people about us. Send a tweet, snap a selfie of you listening, post it on your Facebook, whatever you want. Every little bit helps. And if you're curious about what else we make here in Radioland, we have our full list of shows at podcast.mtv.com. While you're there, you should check out another show, Lady Problems, featuring MTV writers Rachel Handler, Hazel Sills, and Teo Bugby, along with a rotating cast of guests discussing how pop culture treats women like utter trash. Find Lady Problems wherever you download your podcasts. The Stakes is produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, James T. Green, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. Thanks to everyone that submitted and reported stories this week. Get out there, take action, and take care of yourselves and each other. Thanks for listening. 